healthy beast. Today's guest is Dr. Harry Weisinger. He's a family doctor. He's also a scientist, university professor. He's had over 50 scientific papers published, mostly about nutrition and physiology. He's also had a whole list of health problems, hip replacement, Crohn's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So as a miracle, he's still with us, let alone being quite so healthy, cycling competitively. He's even found time to start a supplement company called Truth Origins, selling organic plant-based omegas, curcumin, MCT oil, things like that. So that makes him sound like a bit of an egghead. Maybe he is. Thankfully, he's also a no-nonsense Aussie, so he gets right to the point. I learned a lot of great stuff about how to recover and just get on with your life. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, lovely. Dr. Harry Weisinger, thank you very much for doing the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Now, your story interested me because I think I saw well, I saw someone, who, someone who'd been messed up and kind of pushed through it. So you had a quite a bleak medical history, but now you're super healthy and cycling all over the place. Yeah, I mean, um, I've, I think it's fair to say I've had my share of health challenges over, the, over my life. I sort of, um, I guess I first got exposed to, you know, serious illness at the age of, 17. So I was, um, you know, I remember in, in uh, sort of my final year of high school, just getting this, you know, pain in my, pain in my guts, sitting in the first period, you know, the first class of the day. And every day I had, you know, I had this kind of excruciating abdominal pain that had me doubled over and it would, it would go away after about half an hour. And finally, you know, my parents thought, all right, we better, we better go and get, um, get Harry checked out. And so I went to, you know, one GP after the next and, and basically nothing really came of it. But I kept having this sort of, you know, episodic abdominal pain. And then I guess finally made my way, you know, after 12 months, basically made my way to see a gastroenterologist who uh, picked straight away that I had Crohn's disease. Yeah, so that that was sort of my first encounter. Are you uh, kind of fit and healthy up to them? Were you a sportsman at school? Yeah, so I was always physically active. You know, that's the uh, Australian way. So lots of lots of cricket and Aussie rules football, and you know, played basically played sport my whole life. But at the time, I was, you know, to I guess to give you a bit of feel for it. By the time I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, um, which was in my first year of university, and I'm six foot tall, I was 58 kilograms. So I was pretty What's that skinny. Old, so that's old money, that's kind of... Oh, yeah, don't even ask me to put it into, into pounds. Not, far, yeah, not much. Skinny. Skinny. Really, really pencil skinny. Unattractively skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't buy a date. Yeah. Yeah. So, how long between first feeling ill and kind of being a? I think it was a year. And um, as I said, I saw GPs. You know, and it wasn't. I think it's kind of subtle at the start. And this is this. You know, lots of people share this story. It's it's not really clear what what's brought you in today. You know, got a bit of tummy pain. You know, that's really common. If if GPs referred, you know, every patient with abdominal pain to the gastroenterologist, the gastroenterologist would ring them and tell them to piss off pretty quickly. Yeah. So so yeah, I don't think it was I don't think it was atypical that that uh, it took such a long time to reach a diagnosis. But the minute the gastroenterologist saw me, he was like, yeah, you know, eighteen year old guy that looks like a pencil doubled over in the morning with abdominal pain. That's Crohn's disease until proven otherwise. And yeah, I had all the tests and and what have you, and then. They put me on um, some pretty heavy doses of corticosteroids, you know, prednisolone, and I felt better instantly. And then, and of course, you know, you're a young person. Lots of lots of young people have to deal with illness, of course. But you know, you you're trying to, you know, your head's in a different place when you're 18. I don't know if you remember back, but you know, you're worrying about all sorts of stuff that is really important at the time, but. You know, now as a you know forty something year old, I don't think about any of those things anymore. But you know, I've got teenage angst and all that, all that business. I'm trying to deal with the university and I'm trying to, you know, get a date for the weekend and what have you. But did you manage to have a norm, sort of normal life with this in the background, or were you kind of off school and? So I missed exams in first year university. I was too sick. So it all came to a head around the middle of the 
because you're already at university. Yeah, I was at university yeah, yeah. by the time by the time I was sort of diagnosed with Crohn's. Um, yeah, and I, I I missed exams, and so that uh, yeah, I mean that was believe it or not, you know, quite an important experience because it it sort of forced me to get serious about university. Yeah, because I had a lot of ground to make up having missed exams, so I really needed to do very well in the second half of the year. I was going to have to repeat the whole year. And, and what are you studying at this point? So I was studying a science degree uh, in optometry, which is which is my background, my initial background, I guess. Uh, but you you asked about um, you, you asked about you know living a normal life um, in spite of illness. Well, I as you know, I've I've said I don't really think it's a decision to sort of crack on and and um, try and live a normal life with serious illness. Um, I think it's you just do it. I mean, I didn't see it as a choice. You know, should I should I press on? No, but then you're seeing things through your eyes, aren't you? I suppose, and I don't think it's that people give up. Mm. I think it's that sometimes people accept that identity mm. yeah I think you're right that's I think that's I think the the problem and I don't I don't think you know the people that it's their thing that you know they want to tell you about their condition they want mm. to tell you, and that's kind of the thing in their life that they talk about I think that's the that's the danger that you can become you know consumed by it or, or, or part of your identity is the illness exactly. itself yeah certainly there are people that are defined in large part by by their illness or illnesses. In that way, I've had lots of illness, lots of brushes with medicine and never define myself as that illness. It's, uh, and not even, and, and, you know, I've been fortunate, obviously, um, in that I'm happy and healthy today, but I have, apart from Crohn's, um, I've dealt with 30 bowel obstructions with Crohn's and two resections. So two surgeries where they've cut out. Bits out, yeah, cut cut bits out. I've had um, I've had my left hip replaced. I've had a uh, right coronary artery stented, and I've had um, I've been treated for um, lymphoma. So yeah, I've had I've had some challenges. I'm doing that awful thing of listening to all the things you said and thinking which one of those sounds <laughs> worse. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But because the the one that when when I was reading about your story, the one that stuck out maybe wrongly was the hip replacement because you had it done really young right yeah 39 I was 39 so yeah and maybe that just stuck out because like your mind um, latched onto things it can understand yeah and you're like Crohn's is I've I've interviewed someone with Crohn's before Mm. and it sounds like a horrible illness but can be Mm. but the but the hip everyone thinks oh because everyone knows that's something that happens to a lot of people when they're older yeah yeah well younger and younger actually I mean yeah so I was playing a lot of basketball in university and you know yeah this is obviously before you know marriage and kids so I had a bit more time Um, but I was playing basketball four times a week competitively and just loved it Uh, and it's brutal on on your body Um, so heavy training and and competition schedule time at the gym you know, obviously, I guess, born somewhat funny, you know, like something predisposed me to yeah. get arthritis in my hips so young. This is this is not that uncommon. And by the time I was sort of 37, I guess, I'd already had um, arthroscopy to see if they could clean out, you know, invert commas, clean out the joint. It brought me less than a year of relief and then so I went to see the surgeon um, and I said you know how am I going to go what's the prognosis doctor and he said um, do you know the most common feedback I get after this operation is is people saying I wish I'd done it earlier and I definitely felt that way so I had this I had this done uh, you know really good surgeon um who just did hips you know we we sort of joke I sort of joke 
you know, this guy's so super specialised, he just did left hips. Right, so yeah. this, he, this guy was fantastic and um, he used a, a relatively novel technique, which is, instead of sort of cutting this big, you know, wound down the side of your leg, he'd come in from the front. And there was a lot less trauma to the body than, than the full-on sort of old-fashioned total hip replacement. And I was back at work five days later, like literally five days later on, you know, paracetamol. And and after three months, yeah, you know, I, I remember sort of, you know, walking around one day and, and thought, I don't, I haven't felt my hip today. You know, it was the first time in, I don't know, five or six years I hadn't felt my hip. Mm. It was just magnificent. How long, how long after the... Oh, it's three months. Really? Of, you know, did a bit of physiotherapy. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And what's your main sport? Is it cycling? Yeah, yeah so I guess, um, you know, since we're talking about how sick I've been, we may as well carry on with the story, but because it's relevant to how I've found myself as a competitive cyclist. Right. But I, I was, um, you know, I was rehabilitating from the hip replacement. And I'm, and I'm in a gymnasium, and it's the middle of winter, which in Australia isn't, you know, it's nothing by British standards, but it was cold in the stadium. Anyone that's sort of played uh, any sort of sport in a stadium in winter knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like, the air is cold. And so I was, I was just starting to run up and down the court. Um, and by this stage, I had, had, had a young child... And so my daughter and I are playing, just mucking around on the court. You know, it's really my first time back running. And I get this feeling as I run in my throat as if I'd swallowed an ice cube. It just, it, it was a funny sensation, you know. It's the only way I can really... So nothing in the hip, just... No, no, but this was, this was, this was something else. Yeah. So I'm running, my hip's fine. I'm running up and down the court and as I run it's like I've swallowed an ice cube and I stop running and the sensation goes away and I run and it's like I'm swallowing an ice cube. And I thought, oh shit, this is, this is angina. You know, this is, this is serious. So my dad... And you're, and you're a doctor. So I'm a doctor. Okay, yeah, so, well, so yeah. I'm acutely aware of the, of the you know, and, and of course most doctors are you know, fearful of all disease and their hypochondriacs and you know, all that sort of stuff. And, but my dad had had a stent in his sort of mid-50s and, and we've got heart attacks all over the family. You know, we've scarcely a grandparent that lived past 60-something, right? And so as, with this as a background history, I'm thinking, but surely not. Yeah, but it is, it is you know, related to exercise. No, but I'm too young. Yeah, so it's back and forth, back and forth. Again, goes to the GP and he says, "Oh, come on, man! You, you know, you're fit and healthy. You've never smoked. You don't drink. You know, your cholesterol's normal. Blah blah blah." Just to be sure, I'll send you to the cardiologist. The cardiologist looks at me up and down and goes, "It's not going to be that." But just to be sure, I'll do an exercise stress test. So I'm, so I'm again. It's just soon after my hip. So he puts me on the treadmill and starts cranking up. I don't know if you know how they do a stress test, but you basically got this protocol where they wire you up with ECG leads and then progressively get you to exercise harder and harder on a treadmill. And they've got a protocol that they follow and it gets harder and harder. Well, I was in pain from my hip on this, <laughs> on this exercise test. So I, I sort of... Yeah, you know, I had to. I had to call time basically on that basis alone. I never really got to the to the high level of exercise. So I'm sitting down recovering after the stress test, and the and the cardiologist, who's now a very good friend of mine, was explaining to me that everything was fine. There was you know not, no sign on the ECG of of any sort of you know blockage in my coronary arteries. And as we're talking, he goes, "Hang on." He looks at the, he looks at the um, ECG trace, and I'm showing some sort of sign in recovery. He says, "Oh, look, just to be safe, I'll send you for a 
CAT scan. And again, the, the radiologist says to me, oh, it's, gonna, it's not going to be anything. And sure enough, the next day I got a phone call from the cardiologist saying, you've, had a, you've, had a, you've got a subtotal occlusion of your right coronary. What's that for? Those a blocked artery. Blocked artery. Yeah. So you know, at risk of at risk of heart attack, and and I guess the the good the good side of the story is that m- most people in their late thirties or early forties that present with coronary artery disease present with death. So they they have sudden death because. I guess I was very lucky in that I was getting angina. You know, angina's a warning that something's not right. So you, do you think if you if you hadn't... Had followed it up? If you hadn't had medical training, you could well have... Oh, yeah, no, I would have... I would have... Yes, I think I would have possibly ignored it. And lots and of men died. do. And, yeah, maybe died. Um, or, or had a heart attack. Yeah. Um, so, the, so doctors listening to your podcast are probably thinking, well, right, coronary. Yeah, who cares? I mean... It's not the main one, but in any case, it's a scary so prospect. The, so, your right coronary—that's the that's well. It goes to your right side of your heart. So, that's not the side of your heart that pumps to the whole body. It pumps to the lungs. So, it's a—it's—it doesn't. The requirements on that side of the heart and for that artery are not as high mm-hmm. as for the left side. We're getting getting technical, but anyway. So the, the not the not as bad side. You they're not you, as bad. You side. potentially would have a heart attack, but it can still right. If you get if you get to get a if you get to get a coronary artery blockage, get one on the right side. Right. <laughs> yeah. well, don't, first choice, don't get one at all. Yeah, exactly. But, if but you can't choose your you know you can't choose your genetics, right? right? So I had if you sort of list the risk factors, the known risk factors for coronary artery disease I had none of them except family history and a very strong family history so you'd done everything you could well with your lifestyle but your family yeah, history yeah and and of course there are lots of people that do the opposite and have no coronary artery disease and good for them so how long ago is this now nine years nine years ago mm. and so you had the you had it's a fairly simple procedure yeah simple as far as I was concerned I was lying on a table and the the cardiologist passes a, a um, catheter into your artery through your through your um, hip, basically the femoral artery, and up to the heart. And they sort of do it under under X-ray guidance, and they can uh, record blockages with X-ray, so they can visualise where the blockage is. And then they basically put in a little thing called a stent, which holds the artery walls open and um, yeah so I had a stent at 40 which is that's pretty young yeah I mean how long uh, to before you were back on your bike then so I hadn't been this this was I guess the long segue to, oh, to how I go into cycling and yeah. so the cardiologist as I said good friend of mine said to me you should come cycling and so I I had a, you know, one of those hybrid, okay for the trails, okay for the road kind of bikes. And I went cycling with my cardiologist. And, of course, he was, you know, leaving me in the dust to begin with. And then after I I figured out that I wasn't going to have a heart attack (laughs) cycling, then I started getting more and more serious. Um, And funny enough, um, you know, I got this... I got this payout from my health insurance uh, that was like, you know, ten thousand um, pounds because I had, you know, sort of trauma insurance. You know, if you have a heart attack or, or if you have some sort of coronary event, not enough to make it worth happening. No, no, no. You wouldn't. You certainly wouldn't. No, no. You certainly wouldn't go out of your way uh, for the money. But anyway, it gave me some money to buy buy a really nice bike. So I bought this beautiful bike. Um, called a Pinarello, which is of course what Team Sky have been using for those who know cycling. Um, not me, yeah, not me. Yeah, well anyway, it's a really nice Italian bike. And yeah, the thing was like you know, five, six thousand pounds, like really expensive bike. And so I'm I come to this realisation that I'm a totally shit cyclist with a fantastic bike. There's a lot of those around this way. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what what do you do when you're in that situation? 
you can either get rid of the bike. I mean, you can either, you know, sort of deal with that sort of cognitive load or you can get rid of your bike or you can become a better cyclist. And I happen to have a patient that was a cycling coach and I asked him, you know, do you, do you think you could coach me? And so he set me a program and then within four months I was, I was racing and just love it. So, and, and then be, I guess being the, the doctor, you know, the GP that races bikes, next thing I knew my book was half filled with cyclists and that, you know, some of them were coming into, for performance reasons, you know, they wanted to do better, you know, can you check my bloods? Can you help me with diet advice, etc.? And some of them were coming in because they had hay fever or, you know, ingrown toenail. But basically I had, you know, this town I was working in, I had, it must have been 50%, 60% of the cyclists in the city were coming to me. Just not, so even if it's non-cycling related, they just kind of thought, well, he'll understand. He'll understand, he'll, yeah. you know, and, and they'd all say to me, you know, the other GPs don't get it. I've heard that a lot with yeah. um, with martial arts guys as well, actually, because um, if you were any contact sport, really, if the doctor doesn't understand contact sports, they'll be like, "Well, why? Why would you want to do that to yourself?" You know, absolutely. They're kind of like, well, and they don't get it, and they go, "They'll go, just stop." Yeah, they go, "Just well, why don't you stop right. jujitsu?" So totally, great, great advice. And which, I and I think I do see it differently, you know, to the to cyclists that don't, to GPs that don't cycle competitively i mean it it is an extraordinary thing to race you know race in cycling or to to ride for 70 miles and do 3000 meters of climbing you know it's extraordinary or it's extraordinary to ride for 200 miles a week week in week out these demands you put on the body as it would be for martial mixed martial arts extraordinary demands and and I don't think you can deal with these in a you know say with a normal diet or just with a normal way of living these are these are not normal things we're doing to our bodies so you can't you know you you can't eat the same stuff you can't um I mean, in cycling, when you're, you know, and I've looked after professional cyclists, these guys, what they're doing with their bodies is absolutely extraordinary. And they're burning through red blood cells. So they've got higher demands for all sorts of stuff, vitamins, iron, and so on. So I think I sort of got that. And I also understood the cyclist mentality. You know, it's a bubble that that they live in, cyclists. So you're talking about competitively, how deep have you gone? How serious is it for you in your life, cycling? It's it's a major, major part of my life. It's um, it's my main physical pursuit. But cycling is, for me, and I think for lots of people, and I know you know sort of from your sort of martial arts community... So it's a community, right? And so it's it's a social outlet. It's um, it's a way you can measure your own development. It's meditative. It's health promoting up to a point. Of course, yeah, racing often tips it to potentially unhealthy. You know, if you're having an accident or something like that. Um, but it's 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 a major it's a major part of my life and as I said it's it's kind of a bubble if you if you had the space if your life provided the space how many hours a week would you would you well, give to it yeah I mean I think so currently I probably cycle 12 to 15 hours I train for 12 to 15 hours a week and a lot of it is in the dark I mean that's you know it's a high volume activity you to get good at cycling you need to put in the k's you know put in the miles and so you know we all work so when are you going to cycle you can cycle at 5 a.m so you cycle from 5 a.m and you ride for a couple of hours and you have a coffee with your with your mates and then then you go off and get ready for work and and so it's not it's not so much that i'd 
um, do more, although I would do more, but I do it in the daylight a lot more because um, it's not sometimes it's not so much fun cycling in the in the cold and the rain and the dark. But um, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably do a bit more, and of course, you know, when you when you're working, you cycle close to home, and I think if I had the time and the space, I'd I'd probably go a bit further afield. That's the main. Mm, that's the so main thing. But it's big for you. And you're, you compete as well. You're yeah. So I've so I've raced variably on and off. I guess for the last seven or eight years. Um, yeah, I'm a complete amateur. But it doesn't matter. It's it's um, again. I you know, so I took up cycling at forty. And when I when I started um, racing. And you know, getting sort of good in my grade, I encountered the most painful experiences I've ever put my body through, and it's extraordinary. So if you, um, again, you may have some cyclists that, but but it's not limited to cycling. You, I'm sure you understand this when when you can push your body to the point you're it's screaming you know your heart is screaming and your muscles are screaming at the time it's not much fun but looking back it's like wow i got my body to do that you know and nothing nothing i've done has ever been so physically demanding as the as the the time where you where you try and get go off the front of the peloton and get away by yourself and try and hold that, hold them off for half an hour. You know, there's nothing so painful and so, you know, amazing. Yeah. I think the nice thing about starting things when you're a bit older is you're, you, you, you're clear about what you're doing it for. You're not, you know, you're not trying to be a professional or... That's right. And you know there'll be limitations by your age, but you just do it because you, you love doing it. And, you, and as you say, that buzz you get from pushing yourself oh absolutely it's amazing yeah it doesn't it doesn't matter what grade you race in it just, just doesn't matter you go as hard as you can it doesn't hurt me any less than it hurts a professional no right it hurts just the same so I know I've put pushed my body right to the edge um and that's that's what you get the satisfaction from so what stage during all your kind of illness and sport and everything did you decide to become a medical doctor because you were studying something else mm. and you you know I started I started you know in science did a did a um, optometry degree then I did a, a um, master of science which is a research um, degree then I did a PhD in visual neuroscience and um, nutrition and then sort of branched into got interested in things like blood pressure, body weight. So I'd basically, at this point in time, been at university for best part of 10 years um, and was pretty certain I was going to be a scientist. Um, and then... So an eye scientist of some... Well, uh, as I said, I, I branched into nutrition... And, and sort of systemic physiology, so blood pressure control, body weight control, and all the, all the intricate mechanisms in the brain and in the body that control what blood pressure we have and, and, and body weight and body fat. Now, these, things, these were the things that were interesting me. And so I, you know, I was working as a scientist and, and actually doing pretty well you know I'd sort of published I don't know maybe 50 publications and I'd um, I'd won sort of two million dollars over the time of grant funding but it was it was getting harder and harder to win funding for research and it occurred to me that lots of the competition had medical backgrounds so because I was moving into blood pressure and body weight well I was writing grants that were in the same competitive field as the cardiologists and the physiologists that were doing this as their side interest. And I thought, well, you know, 
better go and get a medical degree. So you'd done all the kind of specific science <laughs> yeah. that they might not know about, but you hadn't got the, the basic... So I got, yeah, so I went a different path, I guess. I became a scientist first and a doctor second. And whereas you see a lot of doctors decide to do a research qualification. Mm. But I guess you all end up at the same... You end up at the same place. So there I was, sort of mid thirties, you know, as a as a junior hospital doctor. Uh, what was it like being the only grown up there? <laughs> so I went through with a few grown ups because um, medical education in Australia sort of changed to be postgraduate. So okay. you do get a lot of. Yeah, you know, I went through with with you know, physiotherapists and nurses and mm. pharmacists and so forth. So I wasn't alone. I mean, I was one of the oldest. Um, but no, it was you know it was a good time in my life, and you know it was hard work, obviously, but but uh, good. So you'd already done a kind of a lot of nutrition science before that, mm. and something that's come up on this podcast a lot with um, doctors is that they don't do any of that. Mm. I don't know if it's different in Australia, but here apparently if you do a five-year mm. medical degree, it's it's a morning yeah. course or an afternoon that they, you know that they set up some trestle tables you can come and listen if you want and, and no one goes you know it's not they're not tested on it yeah so I don't know if that's the same for you that it's not nutrition is not really for the doctors it's like it's a really good point I mean it, it wouldn't even have been a morning in, really? in my training a leaflet <laughs> it might, uh, yeah possibly a leaflet who knows I, I mean it's you know medicine such an interesting career such an interesting education but it's not set up for it's not really set up for health mm. it's set up for disease it's 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 really good at fixing sick people it's not great for preventing sickness and and it, look it's getting better uh, there is some recognition that we're not going to operate and prescribe our way out of the problems that we've got with in society's health. Diabetes, for instance. That if we don't do something about preventing diabetes, you know, we're fucked, basically. Like, we can't afford... We can't afford the complications, and, you know, let alone the medication load of, of um, diseases like diabetes. We have to do something to prevent it. I heard I heard some uh, commentator talking about extremes. What well, what seems extreme, like individuals with diabetes, for instance, having their own coach. It would be cheaper for the health service in the long run to assign a coach to every person with diabetes, in preference to let people have their condition deteriorate suffer the complications, hospitalisation, operation, loss of productivity at work, etc., etc. The cost of the cost of the world, cost of the country, is enormous. So get them a coach, go to their house, rifle through the pantry, get rid of all the garbage, teach teach them how to eat, teach them how to cook, teach them how to exercise. Be better off. And I, I actually think that's right. But it's it's not as I said, it's not. It's not mainstream medicine, nutrition. It's a, it, this is an afterthought, and it's coming to be recognised that it is more important than, than what we thought. And the other, the other aspect is that what we thought was true in terms of nutrition, like the, you know, the food pyramid, for instance, like you and I know food pyramids upside down, right? You want to lose weight, you cut your carbohydrate. Simple eat higher fat but do you know what we as I said we live in a bubble like this health conscious athletic community we all understand that you've got a base of complex carbohydrate grains and fruits and vegetables and this that and the other that's the base and you should consume most of that yeah and then then on top of that you've got in the middle you've got protein so eggs meat chicken, legumes, whatever, and then at the top, a little bit of fat. And so this was this was taught, this has been taught in school and been taught in university for decades. And, and what does it give you? Well, it gives you what I had, right? 
coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, depression, etc. That these are the these are the things. I guess um, you know I tell this to patients. You know, coronary artery disease is a new disease. It's it. This hasn't been around forever. It's this is new. It's like virtually undocumented until like the forties or something, maybe the thirties or forties. But this is all new, and it comes from you know if you're a conspiracy theorist, you'd say the grain industry, you know, wheat and grain pushing this base of you know cereals and grains and what have you. But yeah, you know, whatever the whatever the um, you know, motivators behind it, what we know now is that it's not healthy eating a lot of carbohydrate. And if you if you walk down the aisles of the supermarket, still largely carbohydrate. Um, if you look in most people's pantries, largely carbohydrate. And and we we really have a job of work ahead. So you because I, I think most people have got got past this thing that fat makes you fat. Although not everybody, <laughs> not every. You still hear you know mm. people that should know better. Yeah. Um, but the carbohydrate thing, I agree with you, by the way. But mm. um, it's just such a it's such an easily ac- easily accessible part of everything. Everything totally. Yeah. So some coffee shops you can go and then you've got coffee. Yes. And then the only food you've got is carbohydrate. Is carbohydrates. Yep. Absolutely. You know? I mean, yeah. So the fat makes you fat. That's you know that's a fallacy. So that's that's categorically untrue. And they pushed that for years. Well, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't get my parents to see it any other way. You know, and despite your, your doesn't matter. It doesn't matter many degrees. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many degrees you've got. They don't believe it. Fat makes you fat, and and it's true to say that in terms of calories, fat's the got the most calories of any. You know, gram for yeah, gram. If you were going to eat a certain size, that's right. of Food every, every exactly. Day. But what 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 we don't know, or what you know, I guess the general population don't know is that when you eat fat, you powerfully suppress your appetite and you don't invoke as much of a uh, insulin response as when you eat carbohydrate. And we know insulin is responsible for a lot of the problems that, that we're seeing in terms of the, what we call the metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So... What, what we want is to eat less calories and to have less insulin circulating in our bodies, and that's generally a good thing. It's not that, you know, to, to be honest and to be clear, if you eat 4,000 calories a day, it doesn't matter whether it's fat, carbohydrate, or protein. It's too much, okay, unless you're, a marath- unless you're running a marathon every day. But what eating higher fat diets enables you to do is to eat less calories without feeling like you're starving and that's that's the issue with most diets is you know we understand that reducing what you eat in terms of calories is the most effective way to lose weight but it's it's really hard to do when you're feeling hungry because mm. we we are wired to eat when we're hungry so Fat is what actually lets people eat less without feeling like they're starving. And that's, that's why we've seen diets like the paleo and ketogenic diet, which are extremes of, of a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, and they're very effective. And people can stay on these diets for, well, for the rest of their lives if, if they chose to. Mm. It's not much fun, but they're very effective. Yeah, I think it's a thing. We you just see a lot of overweight people. They're hungry all the time. Mm. That's the thing. They're constantly, constantly. Though even though they're eating far more than they ought to be, always hungry. And it's that des- it's that carb desperation. Is that yeah. as, as I see it? Yeah. So you really, you know, this this is why the ketogenic diet or or variants of it have so much promise. It's that it's that suppression of appetite because you know yes. A lot of our eating is habitual, ritual, um, but some of it is some of it is hunger. Um, not so much in the Western world. Do you ever um, 
go go periods without eating do you do fasting yeah I do yeah yeah I try that hold on the longest I've fasted is 24 hours just uh, out of interest and I've I, I do find it hard as a cyclist because it's you will run out of if you run out of sort of stored energy you're in trouble uh, if you want to go at higher intensity which I tend to want to do but um, what I've tried most commonly I suppose is is um, intermittent fasting where I would um, have my last meal last food of the day at say 8pm and not eat until lunchtime the next day and that's that's reasonably um, easy to manage and so people that do that three or four times a week will lose a lot of weight and will feel a lot better it's also supposed to be really good for your immune system and so forth is it, is it do you believe yeah. in all of that or i don't i don't know i i don't know i'm not familiar with the research on it so i couldn't comment but i've heard that myself yeah i think i may be doing that awful thing of kind of half remembering loads of different things but yeah, yeah. It, it kind of made sense to me that that your body goes into this kind of panic defensive state yeah and it's and it's actually good for you rather than constantly drip feeding food yeah of course of course you're right i mean our our whole physiology is is sort of evolved yeah this this period of food abundance this is a new thing right this is not how we evolved we evolved to deal with scarcity that's that's the human genome it deals with scarcity so where you get a buffalo once every week you have to eat the buffalo and then you've got to basically fast until the next buffalo comes along or whatever and and so the when we um so so it's a it's a it's a um i guess our physiology is is set up to store energy really well and to access that energy in times of starvation so we starvation just being a period where you're not eating you know it could be a day starvation from a physiology mm-hmm. point of view and that's not what we do anymore of course we, you know it's three square meals a day plus snacks and in fact we of course we were talking about this um you know in in uh you know the, the, this was advice being given by nutritionists and doctors and even you know even in the schools it was lots of small meals per day is better than this big load and and while that's true while that's true you will if you eat through the day you will still store a lot of calories around your abdomen yeah so yeah there's a challenge you know this is this this is the sort of challenge of our time in a, in in countries where there's food abundance the challenge is not gaining weight mm. you know I, I i i struggle and i as i said i'm training 14 hours a week if i don't watch what i eat i'll still gain weight i'm just amazing yeah it's easy to do i think the older you get for sure yeah as well so you talk about nutrition so i got to know you through this you got involved with the supplement company it's truthorigins.co.uk mm. So did that come about through your involvement with sport and looking at ways to yeah supplement what you're eating absolutely so as a as a sort of a competitive person you know right right back to when I was I guess playing basketball at the university and now cycling you know you're you're always looking for ways to perform better feel better train better recover better and um so so together with with my good friend trent who's also you know competitive athlete in in martial arts we you know we were you know we're um we were interested in obviously you know predating truth origins we were interested in supplements to to improve performance always taking you know creatine and protein powders and whatever trying this stuff and then we were pretty keen on you know, establishing some sort of business you know we've, we've you know been friends for a long time and we talked about doing something together forever and then we came across a company uh in australia some scientists in australia that, that had developed some really interesting stuff um you know they didn't have many products but they they're they're 
the whole thing was making things that were relatively non-absorbable, like turmeric, into water-soluble. So these really smart guys um, in a lab in Australia had come up with with um, some some products that were organic and water-soluble. Uh, and yeah, that's that's really how we came to found Truth Origins because there was there was a. So you do so sorry to interrupt because mm. so you do you're doing um so you're doing vitamin C. Yep. And omegas. Yep. And curcumin. And curcumin and MCT. And MCT also. MCT. I was just wondering the reason I interrupted because you talked about solubility and um mm. I think I think a lot of people get a bit skeptical about this is what kind of got interested mm. in reading about your company a lot of people are skeptical about various things they take because they don't think they're getting absorbed by the body they're kind of mm. they they wonder if it's the same as taking it in good food mm. and it mm. seems like you guys have taken this focus on things that actually mm. work as well as mm. yeah. scientifically feasible yeah I mean there's so much to talk about I mean, I'm, I'm a skeptic right so my medical and scientific training leads me to the default position of not believing anything but wanting to test it you know I'm curious and I think as I said before when you're doing extraordinary things which all of us are doing whether it's whether it's physical or mental you know we're we're doing even if you sit at a computer for four hours a day that's extraordinary compared with what we're you know sort of set up physiologically extraordinary, mentally extraordinary as an extraordinarily bad it's extraordinarily bad yeah. for you but we ask ourselves to get up go and spend the be- you know best hours of our day at work and then come home and be you know mentally and emotionally available for our family this is this is you know this is a very demanding things that we're doing and i think we can't rely on what has always been a typical you know healthy diet to give us everything that we need and i i'm personally always looking for the edge not not over not over the next person but the edge for me to feel better to think better to perform better just to just to yeah be better and um as I said, very. I, I'm sceptical about a lot of this stuff. Um, given my given my background, but you know, what I also know is that, and this is this is really the most important thing, is that if we wait for the scientific proof to be categorical for anything we will be waiting a very very long time so if you take if you take curcumin which is an active compound extracted from the the spice root turmeric which is a bit of a fad now you know you see a lot of a lot of stuff around turmeric it's it's become the new butt of jokes for a a posh middle class area you know like turmeric lattes yeah that's right turmeric lattes so yeah it's that kind of yeah yeah. we've started to see turmeric lattes in australia but but if you take that that's a that's a compound with curcumin is a compound within turmeric it is yeah okay it is and it's it's the it's the uh it's believed to be for, for whatever the whatever the um you know the whatever turmeric is doing in the body it's it's believed that curcumin is responsible for that activity and this includes but is not limited to so it's anti-inflammatory yep uh, this is all with your you know your science yes skeptical head yeah the main claims anti-inflammatory and and various other things it's yeah possible. i mean it's 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 i mean it's been thousands of studies on turmeric or curcumin and some of the some of the science is incredible um what this what this can do it's early days so you know here's what i'll tell you about curcumin it's safe 
in high quantities. This is the most important thing because, as I said, whether it does something or not of benefit, we, we're not going to know categorically for a very long time. But if it's not safe, it's a non-starter, obviously. Right? This stuff is safe. It's been used for thousands of years in high quantities in cooking. Right? And, and it's been used in high doses in studies and has been found to be safe. And then the question about what it does of benefit can be answered you know, with some comfort now in that you go, all right, well, it's safe. That's a good start. I wonder if it does anything. And some of the, some of the as you say, anti-inflammatory. So we know that in, I guess, in vitro studies, so test tube studies and in animal studies this shows massive potential in affecting the pathways of inflammation so it blocks inflammation there's a complex cascade of um, changes that occur to cause inflammation in the body in the joints and curcumin interferes with that in a test tube and in an animal and in the early studies on humans it looks like it works and it's safe right so that's the first thing the second thing is incredibly it's it interferes with cancer proliferation so again how, how's this done it's well let's let's get some breast cancer cells and put some curcumin on them and see what happens and it stops it in its tracks and this is of interest obviously to drug companies the developing chemotherapy um, regimens to the point where there are drugs being developed that have a traditional chemotherapy drug attached to curcumin so as I said there are there are lots of studies some of them on things like period pain you know joint pain and that's why I started hammering it because I thought, yeah, because I guess from a punter's point of view, like I am, mm. you're not scientist. You, you've got all these scientific caveats, but if they're safe, you you want to start you want to you want to start trying things. But it sounds like you're saying that the medical profession is is doing very targeted research with it as well. Well, the scientific and medical um, communities are testing it we'll we'll certainly know more and more about it over time there's no question um you but as i said before we can't wait we can't wait for the for the you know incontrovertible research and that's you, sorry to interrupt. Hmm. You, you can be scientific about some stuff because for example with the bio bioavailability yes talking about, that you can test yes so you could test if you if you take this turmeric you will hmm you're going to get a small quantity of this compound. Yes. So it's not it's not water soluble. I mean if you if you take the spice turmeric and you put a teaspoon in the glass of water, it'll sit on top of the water. You stir it, it'll sit on top of the water. It's hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water, and a lot of the a lot of the um, absorption uh, mechanisms that the body uses rely on water solubility a lot of them, that or fat solubility so otherwise it just passes through that this stuff passes through yeah. you in large quantity, I mean I've read studies that say it basically goes through you know, untouched, it, untouched. okay, so yeah keep, a good, having the same yeah, yeah, right and and, and so it, it, it totally makes sense that if it's water soluble more will get to where it's going to work, and so that's what these—that's what these clever um, folks in in Australia um, developed. And so that's what attracted us. Is okay. So it looks like curcumin does some really nice things, and let's get some curcumin that actually gets to the body. So that's what we've—that's what—that's what we've got. And my role in the company is really to apply my medical and scientific training and background and natural scepticism to all of the things that we bring to market because you know I think it's very it's getting harder and harder for 
you know, the, the people in the community to be able to understand what's out there in terms of information. There's a lot of shit information. And blogs have become, you know, a pseudo... Well, not even a pseudo. Like, blogs and tweets have become, you know, gospel almost. I mean, to give you, to give you a point um, on this, we... You know, we, you know, we advertise this stuff, and we use Facebook, like like everyone else. You know, use Facebook to advertise. Um, and someone wrote a comment on our. Someone wrote a wrote a comment on our Facebook page. Um, that was disputing one of the, not even one of the claims. I mean, the the word. We get questions all the time about whether whether um, curcumin affects blood clotting. Now, there's some early research that shows it might affect blood clotting, and there's some anecdotal um, sort of reports that people's um, requirement for for blood thinners goes down when you take turmeric. Okay, so yeah, there's the possibility that it does, but there's nothing categorical in the research. So this is our position. And I, when I speak for Truth Origins, I don't speak as a doctor. I speak as an advocate and a, and a scientist that summarises the summarises the literature on the topic. And and someone wrote in on Facebook and said, "It's on YouTube that it clearly affects clotting. Don't listen to Truth Origins." And I thought, "Fuck me, YouTube is now." You know, nature medicine. And what you were doing was the right thing. You were offering, <laughs> so you were offering the, the the kind of caution, right? Scientific caution, but even uh, so, so. But in a, you know, does that surprise you? You know, you're a journalist. You understand this is this is the age of, of you know unreason. My job is to state the facts as we know them, summarise the research, try and make it accessible, but not spinny. You know, my, this is that's why we that's why we call it truth because I just wanted to just wanted to stop all the garbage yeah because it's very easy to it's very easy to find people who are certain about things on the internet you know there's it's full of people that will tell you this is exactly how it is and that's the end of it and then there's another load of people who tell you no that's bullshit absolutely so yeah that's that's what you know i liked about the look of the company that there's they're offering up look this is here we are this is the best we can do but you're not going to because i think when you when you overblow claims, that's when people are thinking, well, mm. okay, we know why you're doing that, because you want to sell more, but... Yeah. But oh, yeah. don't get me wrong. I mean, I'd, I'd love to sell lots of this stuff, but I, but but we want we want people to make a good, informed choice, and we want to give comfort that the stuff we sell is safe and then has all the, all the properties of being organic, plant-based, petrochemical-free, you know, all the extraction methods are all, you know, natural, no synthetics are used, it doesn't touch plastic, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's all, this is all as good as it's going to get. And then we'll find out over time. And that's, that's, you know, I think we've got some brilliant stuff um, and some, and some really unique, um, really unique products in the, in the liquid uh, you know, water soluble form. So I'm, I'm, I'm really upbeat about about what Truth Origins is up to, and I think there'll be more, some more stuff. You know, as we develop again, evidence based, you know, scientifically robust. And you're testing it all in yourself as well as you can. Absolutely, absolutely. I wouldn't, I would not sell anything I wouldn't use myself. I've been using curcumin now for, I guess, best part of six months. Mm. Um, I've noticed a change in back pain so I had I have I've had a disc prolapse and and like you I've had uh, corticosteroid injections under guidance and just had this nagging nagging low back pain and then started taking curcumin didn't really think much of it for a while and then I think maybe a month after starting back pain gone now I've had it for years <laughs> years and that's just gone I went Wow, it could work. So. Yeah, this might this might be the curcumin. You know, who knows? It's well, you, I mean, you are a great personal example, like with all you've been through, <laughs> to to still be here, like strong and. Oh, look, I, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, 
but I'm like the you know, like the next guy. I'm just just you know want to feel as good as I can, perform as good as I can, and I'm willing to you know within the limits of what is safe. I'm willing to try just about anything. Amazing. Well, if people want to see more of the company, it's truthorigins.co.uk. And I'm Harry. It's great to talk to you, Dr. Harry Weisinger. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you very much to Dr. Harry Weisinger. You can find out more about Truth Origins at truthorigins.co.uk. It's at truthorigins on Instagram. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. (music) 